Um, my name's Nick, and uh, lead pastor here. If I haven't met you, love to meet you afterwards. Um, but otherwise, I'm going to get us right in. We had a lot of announcements, and uh, I feel like it's time to open up the Bible. So, um, I guess if you could open up to Luke, we're back in Luke's Gospel now. It's been a while. Um, Luke chapter 16. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Um, but we're going to be in uh, somewhat of an interesting text this morning. Uh, you'll see what I mean probably as we read it. Um, but it should, should be fun. So Luke 16 verses 1 through 14 are what I'm going to read. Um, I'll come out of that, pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. So let me just give you a moment to get there. And then let's go. All right. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. Well, the man said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You confused yet? (laughs) One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Let's pray. I need it. God, at the end of the day, in this text... You're coming after our hearts. We see it there in that last line. We cannot serve both God and money. We cannot be lovers, both of you, and of money. The things of this world, or the God who made it all. Those are our options. It's a binary decision. We can go one way or the other. Lord, today I pray that you would open up our eyes, open up our hearts, and draw us to yourself. I pray that the world and all it has to offer would lose its allure. 
That if it has a hold on us right now, if there are things either we are, are excited to get or afraid to lose, if our hearts are too attached to some of these things, trying to find status, security, whatever it may be in them, God, I pray that even now we'd feel our affections begin to loosen and our heart being kind of rerooted back in you. But we know that you mean good for us as we come to your word, even when it's a hard word. And so I pray today we would receive this together from your lips as love. As a word of blessing, a word of grace. Holy Spirit, come and help, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Okay, so... Even just reading that through, now I'm aware, I mean, I sit in a text for a week or more sometimes, right? And I am aware that the first read through of even a, uh, a pretty comprehensible uh, text, uh, you, you're not necessarily going to get it or see it. Uh, but how much more so this one? I'm aware that when we dive in and when I kind of read through this, uh, you guys are probably largely left just scratching your heads. My hope is that by the end of our time together, that will not be the case. But um, I, my sense is you probably already um, kind of intuitively could sense that this is a difficult text. In fact, um, scholars, commentators, although you don't have to be a scholar or commentator to get it, uh, they have said this is probably one of the most difficult texts in all the Bible to try to interpret or write. Um, some commentators estimate there have been, you know, 16 plus different interpretations of this parable. What do we make of it? What is Jesus saying here? What are we supposed to do with these words? So, uh, I am aware that I need to tread carefully. I need to tread humbly. I want to, I want to take each word and, 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 and try my best to help us make sense of it. Um, But with that being said, even still, I think at the end of the day, and I hope you see this, uh, the essential message here is actually not that hard to get. The secondary stuff, all the details and how it all fits together, uh, some of it may be lost on us. And there may be different opinions, but I think the essential message comes out and it's clear. And that's really what I'm going to try to sink my teeth into, because that's what I think uh, Jesus would want for us to understand, especially here this morning. Uh, there are three things on the agenda. You'll see it in your handout or if you, uh, you can remember, you can always download it on your on your phone or whatever from our website uh, if you prefer electronic versions. But um, three things for us to kind of consider. First, I want to try to get the story straight. I want to make sure, because like I said, this is difficult, complex. Uh, I want to make sure we even understand what's going on. First of all, verses 1 through 7, we'll kind of focus in there, make sure we get straight the story. Then I want to air out the questions, in particular, in particular the question that kind of arises from uh, the first part of verse 8. And, and we'll get there. And I'll show you. I mean, there are certain things you just want to ask. Wait, what is he saying? What does that mean? We're going to kind of air that out together, make sure we're clear on what exactly is the confusion. And then uh, thirdly, we will kind of try to make plain the point as we move towards the latter part of verse 8 uh, and, and through verse 14. So uh, that's kind of where we're headed. In the middle of that, I'll try to apply. And I'm going to be going after uh, our hearts this morning because that's what I think uh, Jesus is after as well. Um, so first, let's... Get straight 
the story. Verses 1 through 7. Get straight the story. Um, what I want to do here in particular is we'll look at this manager and I want to make sure we get a sense of the sort of man that he is. If we missed some of it uh, in, in some of the complexities of the narrative there, I want to make sure we see what sort of a man this is, what exactly he's doing, what he's all about. Because uh, that's really going to set us up for the, the question that we have in uh, the second part of this sermon. So, taking it kind of verse by verse. In verse 1, we're introduced to a, a wealthy landowner, we're told. This guy uh, owns a lot of land, he's, uh, he's, he's well off, and oftentimes in this day what they would do is they would appoint a manager or a steward who would kind of oversee their property, oversee their estate and the daily affairs and kind of represent them, kind of work on their behalf. So you've got this wealthy landowner, and then you have this manager or steward uh, who's been put in position over the house by that landowner. And that's what our uh, the man in focus here is. He's a manager. He's a steward. And we see there, right out of the gate, verse 1, that he's doing a terrible job. This man was wasting his, the rich man's, possessions, we read. The word for wasting there is the same word that uh, Luke used back up in uh, Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son. When it says hey, he, he went off to a distant country and he just squandered all of his stuff. That's the word here for this guy is wasting the rich man's, the wealthy landowner's possessions. He was supposed to be caring for them, stewarding them, and he's wasting them. So first things we learn about this man, he's wasteful, he's irresponsible, he's unfaithful, he's careless, he's frivolous. You could say those sorts of things, right? And we move to verses two and three, and we, we kind of fill this picture out even more. And unfortunately, it doesn't get any better for our brother here. Uh, what we find out is, okay, the landowner, the guy who hired this manager, hears that his manager has been unfaithful. He's been wasting his, pos- his possessions and things and not handling uh, matters effectively. So the landowner says, listen, that's it. I'm going to remove you from your post, but here's what I want you to do. Before I kick you out of the house, I want you to at least kind of get your accounts in order and report back to me so that I can make sure I pick up where you left off and we start doing a better job. So here's what happens then. The steward kind of senses the urgency of the situation. He senses the reality that, okay, wow, he's been found out. His job's about to be done. And so now he's kind of, I got to survey my various options here. What am I going to do? When I lose my job here for being unfaithful, I'm going to have nowhere to go. Me, my family, how am I going to provide? Where are we going to stay? He senses kind of the urgency of the situation and he surveys his various options. How can I uh, uh, make the best of this bad situation? This is verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Now in that last line, two more things come out about this man. We learn two more things about him. One, I would say he's, 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 he's soft. He's perhaps slothful, you could say, right? I'm not strong enough to dig. I've not been acquainted with that kind of hard manual labor before, and I certainly don't want to start now. 
Right? This guy is as white collar as it gets, right? He's, 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 he's kind of grown up with that silver spoon in his mouth. That's the kind of mentality that we get. He, he's got all his shirts pressed. He, he's got his hands, you know, when you go to shake him, there's no calluses there. He doesn't know manual labor and he doesn't want to get into it. He's not willing to go there. He's, he's slothful. He's lazy. You could say that's at least what I'm kind of picking up from his reasoning there. But we see more in the second part, right? Because he gives another reason. I'm ashamed to beg. In other words, we see he's also proud. I'm ashamed to beg. The idea is here. It's beneath me. I will not stoop to such a level. I'm not going to get on the ground with the desperate, you know, beggars. I I would rather die than hold out a cup for someone else's hard-earned cash to be dropped into. That's not me. That's not, not for me. Far be it from me to be in that place. I'm too ashamed to do that. Not going to do that. So we see he's wasteful, irresponsible, slothful, proud. And then verses 4 through 7, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. Verse 4, then, he hatches a plan. If I don't want to work, and I don't want to beg, well, I suppose I could manipulate and, and swindle and, 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 and figure, my, figure this out another way. So he decides he's going to reduce the debts owed to his master by others, uh, in an attempt to get on their good side. Okay? Here's his idea. Basically, I'm gonna go to those who owe my master money while I still have a little bit of authority, a little bit left. He told me I gotta get my accounts in order. I'm just getting my accounts in order. He's gonna go to these guys who owe his master money. He's gonna say, how much do you owe? A hundred? Alright, let's drop it to fifty. How much do you owe? A hundred? Okay, let's drop it to eighty. And he's gonna try to get these other people now, um, He's trying to get on their good side. He's trying to get himself in their favor so that when he's out on the streets, so that when the time comes and the master gives him the boot, he can come knocking on these doors, say, hey, do you remember that, that time when you owed X amount of money and I dropped it to Y? Um, you owe me. Open the door, I'm moving in, get a bed ready, press my shirts, I I, I want some falafel, bring it out. You owe me, right? The idea is he's trying to kind of swindle his way into provision for himself after uh, stuff uh, falls apart and he, he loses his job. So... What we come from to see from this then here is that it seems to me he's self-centered. He's manipulative. You even get the sense that there's embezzlement going on as he's misappropriating the master's funds to serve his own needs. So bottom line, if we just had to sum it all up, this guy is a weasel. He's a scoundrel. Okay? We got, we got the clear picture in our mind here now. All that sounds great. All that, okay, I see that. Nick, this isn't that complicated to understand. What are you trying to say? This seems easy enough. But then we come to verse 8. And this is where the complexity begins. This is where we start to scratch our heads. This is the second part of the sermon, airing out the question. Now we're in verse 8, first part. After all this nonsense... After all the stuff that this guy has been up to, our sense of it, our expectation, 
would be that the master of the house, the wealthy landowner, would uh, uh, come storming out after this man with a vengeance. He'd boot him out of his house. It'd be done, right? In fact, we've read other parables, like I think back in Luke 12, where we, we see this sort of thing happen, where Jesus tells a story about these stewards who are not faithful, and then the master shows up, and it doesn't go well for those guys. I believe the actual term Jesus uses is he cut them into pieces. Okay, you go, oh gosh, that sounds brutal. But that's the sort of thing we would expect this guy might receive, right? Okay, not just, uh, you know, maybe, hey, buddy, I'll see you next time. Best of luck. I'll write a good review for you. But get out. I never want to see you again. You've cheated and swindled uh, this entire time. When I go to fire you, you get even worse. That's the sort of thing we would expect to see uh, this wealthy landowner, this master do. And yet that's not what we see, is it? Instead, we come to verse 8 and we read this. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. I mean, the word that I have there in my translation is commended. You say commended? I'm chastised? Okay, I can see that. Crucified? Maybe so. But commended? How could that be? Why? What is Jesus trying to get at here? Trying to make us all thieves and swindlers too? Is that the idea? This man is exemplary. Let's all learn from him, disciples. Is that the idea? Why would this man be Commended. Well, if you notice, we're told why the dishonest manager was commended for his shrewdness, for his shrewdness. Now, our English dictionaries uh, define shrewdness this way. The quality of having or showing good powers of judgment in the Greek. It's derived from a word which means pertaining to understanding associated with insight and wisdom, sensible, thoughtful, prudent, wise. It's a good word. You and I want to be shrewd, sound judgment, understanding, insight, wisdom. But we still kind of look at this man. We look at this parable, the portrait that's kind of been painted of him. And we kind of go, really? So let me begin to try to make a little bit more sense of it. Certainly, we need to understand that Jesus is not here commending this man for his dishonesty. Jesus is not saying this man is being commended for his dishonesty. He's being commended, though, for his shrewdness. However dishonest and corrupt he may have been, one thing is true, and that is that he was shrewd. And by that, here's what I mean. This man saw that things were going to go bad for him. He saw that on the horizon, there was a crisis coming. There was a dilemma that was soon to kind of crash into his life. And so in view of that coming crisis, that's kind of waiting for him tomorrow, he, he rearranged, reprioritized, and did something. It changed the way he lived today. You see that? He got the seriousness of the situation... He understood what was coming, and therefore he made sure he was prepared for it. However corrupt and and, and weaselly he went about preparing for it, that's not the issue here. The issue is he did something. 
That's what I want you to catch. The exemplary point is not what he decided to do per se, but that he did something at all. That's what the shrewdness is in this moment. It's not, I mean, he even still says, he, he commended the dishonest manager. I know you're still dishonest. I know you're still a scoundrel. But man, that was pretty smart. And at least you kind of, you realized the severity of the situation and you ordered your life accordingly in light of it. Whatever else that may be, it is most certainly shrewd. Now, Part number three here, making plain the point. As we move into the latter part of verse 8 through verse 14 now, um, what I want to see is Jesus is going to, and it's, it's pretty abrupt actually when you're reading it, which is why I think it gets even more confusing. Jesus immediately just kind of transitions to the point. He just kind of almost rips us out of the world of the parable that he created here, and he just tries to get at the point immediately. And I know I've already kind of started to tip my hand towards uh, the way that I'm going to interpret these things and apply these things. Uh, but Jesus himself first has some things to say about what he wants us to get from this parable, uh, uh, how to interpret, how to apply. With the, the four there in the middle part of verse eight, when Jesus says four, he immediately is moving towards his interpretation of what he wants us to see. Um, before I, I, I get into these verses, though, there's just one thing I wanted to say. Well, actually, there were many things, but I cut most of them out. Uh, one thing that I wanted to see in particular, though, before we move on, because even in these words that Jesus is about to share about this parable, they're still admittedly hard to understand and complex. And there's one observation from the context that I uh, want to kind of constrain and guide my interpretation of these uh, verses that we're about to look at. And it comes from, the observation comes from verse 14. So at the very tail end, when Jesus is all done talking about how to interpret and apply and what he means, we see the Pharisees respond to it. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, yes, but the Pharisees, as always, are kind of like eavesdropping, right? They're hearing some of these things. And in verse 14, we see how the Pharisees respond. And it's telling. It's telling. It it shows us something of what Jesus must be saying in these words, however convoluted or complex they are to us. Because here's what we read. I want you to see this again. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. Luke throws that in to help us out. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus had been saying, and they ridiculed him. So here's, you're probably like, what are you talking about, Nick? Where are you going with this? Here's what I know. The Pharisees, it would seem quite plainly, they get whatever Jesus is putting down. They're picking it up. They get it. They have the interpretation that would seem to be right of the things that Jesus is saying. Because Jesus doesn't correct them after this and say, hey, you misunderstood me. No, no, no. He says, you guys love the external, but your hearts are far from God. You got it. And you get that you're not on the right side of this. Now, here's, here's what I want us to get then. The right interpretation of these words of Jesus better make the Pharisees who love money upset. Does that make sense? So whatever we do with these words, here better be kind of, this is going to be kind of my test at the end of the day. Would this upset, would this anger, would this frustrate the Pharisees 
Because, in particular, they were lovers of money. Because whatever we come to, whatever conclusions we draw, that better be the, 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 out, the outflow. And the, the sad reality is, unfortunately, another part of the litmus test is, is in this room right now, frankly, if there are people who have their hearts, affections, uh, unduly attached to the things of this world, and money, and, and worldly wealth, and possessions, and things, you also, if I am interpreting this text correctly, better start to feel a little bit unsettled. And just like the Pharisees go, man, I don't like what he's saying, and I don't like him. There might be some of that going on in this room towards me. And if I get some of that from people whose hearts are attached to money, well, then you know what? I think I've done the text justice, and God will be pleased even if the world hates. Right? That's my, that's kind of my guiding, constraining observation going forward. I want whatever I, whatever conclusions I draw about the interpret, interpreting and, and applying of this text, uh, I want it to, to upset those who have their hearts unduly attached to the money and the things of this world. Because that's what we see happen at the end when Jesus is done explaining it. Okay, so now as we dive into these next verses, it seems to me that we kind of enter upon a sort of ascending staircase. Uh, Jesus' thought kind of comes at us and it is difficult to kind of follow. And so I want to break it down almost like a sort of ascending staircase. We're going to take it kind of verse by verse, each one kind of another step moving up into his thought towards uh, some pretty profound realities. And so that's what I want to do to try to slow us down and make sense of these things. Let's go step by step here together. Stair step number one comes in the latter part of verse eight. Let's look at this. After noting that the rich man commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, Jesus immediately, abruptly, aggressively pushes us towards the point. That's why he uses that for. He said, okay, disciples, here's what I want you to get by this. For, he says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, to help us make sense of this, um, it might be helpful to see where Jesus does something similar in other parables. This is what we would call, what he's engaging here is what we would call a lesser to greater uh, argument or a how much more sort of argument, okay? And he's done this in other parables. And I want to show you this and then we'll come back to this verse. So in Luke 18, 1 through 8, it's kind of the, the perfect example for you. Um, it's this parable that he tells. He says, listen, I'm trying to, uh, Luke says that Jesus tells this parable is try to encourage his disciples to not lose heart in prayer okay and this is what he says he says okay there was a widow and 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 she had been unjustly treated or whatever and she kept going to this judge and coming in and saying i want justice please give me justice please help aren't you a judge aren't you supposed to care and the judge says i don't care he didn't care about justice. He didn't care about this woman. He didn't care about doing the right thing. He was an unjust, an unrighteous judge, Jesus tells us. But the woman kept coming. The widow kept coming. The, wi- the widow kept begging for justice. And finally, this judge says, all right, you know what? Listen, lady, I will give you what you want if it will mean you just get out of my face, out of my courtroom, whatever, off of my back. 
So the woman got what she wanted, even though the guy was unjust, unrighteous, didn't care about her at all. And then here's the point that Jesus drives from this parable. He says, listen, if this corrupt, unrighteous, uncaring judge will give this widow what she is asking and give justice to her because she kept coming and asking, how much more, there it is, there's the logic, how much more disciples Will your heavenly father, who is righteous, who is just, who does love you, care about you, want what's best for you, how much more will he hear you as you come to him in prayer and act on what you ask for your good? See that? It's a lesser to greater. It's how much more. That's the very sort of thing that's going on in this text here this morning. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, listen, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's using a how much more argument. If I could sum it up, I would sum it up for us like this. If even this worldly scoundrel. So the fact that this guy was corrupt is actually part of Jesus's point. The fact that this man is worldly and and, and ungodly is part of his point is part of his punchline. Here's what he's saying. If this worldly scoundrel, this son of this world, as Jesus refers to him as, uh, knows how to order his daily affairs in view of tomorrow and its coming crisis, how much more? There it is. How much more should the children of God, the who he calls sons of light, be ordering their lives in view of eternity and the coming day of judgment? Did you hear that? Because that's, I mean, that's the essence of what I'm going to be saying the rest of this morning. I'm getting blank stares. People say, oh no, I'm as opaque as Jesus is here. Shoot. But you got it, right? If even this worldly guy gets that I better live today in view of tomorrow because there's some things going on, how much more should those who are the children of God, who know about eternity, know about what's waiting, know about the the heavy realities like heaven and hell and, and heavenly reward and all these things, how much more should they be ordering their daily affairs in light of that? If even unregenerate, Secular, worldly, corrupt people get that basic principle. Why can't my children? That's the point. Because he's saying, kind of, honestly, often these sons of light aren't getting it. Honestly, often we aren't doing it. To be clear again, He is certainly not saying that we need to learn how to cheat and swindle to make good for ourselves here. That's not the point. The point is if even a cheater swindler gets the basic principle of shrewdness that I need to order my daily affairs in view of tomorrow, how much more should we? Now, this is really what he's going to bring out even more clearly for us in verse 9. So let's move. Let's take another step. Stair step number 2 as we kind of move along in Jesus' flow of thought here. Verse 9. Uh, let me read it again to you. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Man, Jesus' words are hard. They're hard to understand. What in the world is he talking about? I will do my best. 
But what we notice for sure, if you're looking carefully, is that the earthly and temporary fixtures of the parable start to give way with concern for heavenly and eternal matters. Did you notice that? He kind of, he's talking about the stuff we just saw in the parable, like making friends for yourselves, like that guy did by cutting debts and things. Uh, making friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. We'll get to that in a moment. What in the world is unrighteous wealth? So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Well, all of a sudden, he drops that word eternal in there. Oh, he's not talking about just getting friends and things for myself. No, he's talking about eternity. He's talking about an entrance into eternity. He's talking about coming into the kingdom of God, coming into heaven. He's talking about what it will be like when we come to face God. And what do we need to do to get right for that day? To prepare for that day? Here, Jesus is explicitly tying this shrewdness that was commendable in the manager to us. He's saying, listen, that manager saw the crisis and he said, what are my options? I better do something. And he tried to make friends for himself so that he'd he'd be prepared for that day. And he's saying in some analogical sort of similar but different sort of way, so ought ought the disciples of, of him to do, right? His disciples should do. We should also be in some way preparing for that day. And ordering daily affairs and making friends for ourselves, whatever that means, we'll look at that in a moment, um, to be ready. I think um, commentator Michael Wilcock provides a helpful summary for us on this point. And I wanted to read this to him. I'm actually going to read a few things that he says. This is the first. Listen to this. The steward was faced with dismissal. The one thing that was certain in his future was that he would shortly find himself out of work. He had just uh, one means of ensuring that when that day came, he would not be stranded. His employer's books were still, for the moment, under his control. (laughs) Those books he tampered with in such a way as to reduce greatly a number of debts owed to his employer and thus to earn the gratitude of the various debtors who in their turn could be relied on to help him when he had to leave his present sphere of work. And here's what we get to the point. In the same way, one thing is certain in every man's future, his dismissal from his present sphere into the unknown regions of eternity. And one means is available for ensuring now that he will have an eternal home to go then. And it's the right use of the opportunities of daily life. Now, in other words, what he's saying here is, and what Jesus is saying is, the way you use this unrighteous wealth, which we'll look at in a moment, uh, will in some way influence and ultimately determine what will happen to you when you die and come to face God in eternity. Now, let's do some work on unrighteous wealth, because I'm sure we kind of go, wait, what in the world is, is the meaning of unrighteous wealth? I don't have time to go into all the various interpretations. I'll just give you one that I don't think it is at all, and the one that I do. Uh, certainly, we're not to think of Jesus here as somehow condoning uh, our accumulation and use of wealth in an unrighteous way. He's not saying, hey... Get money for yourself like this dude did and then use it in a way that will get you right for eternity. That's not what he's saying. That would be a very bad way to be preparing for eternity, to be swindling and stealing and then maybe, oh, I give it to the poor or something like that. No. He's not talking about unrighteous wealth in, in, in a sense that it's being used or it's being accumulated unrighteously. 
Rather, it seems to me that by unrighteous wealth, Jesus is here referring to that wealth that exists and operates within the sphere of this unrighteous world. So it's, 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 it's part and parcel of what the scriptures call this evil age. And so here's the wealth that we use, and here's the money that we use in this age, this unrighteous age. And therefore, in that, it's this wealth that's in, the, in this unrighteous sphere. And it operates there. And actually what we'll see is he'll later contrast this unrighteous wealth with the true wealth that's of the age to come. So I think that's kind of what's going on here. Basically, you could say, okay, unrighteous wealth is your cash, your stuff, here and now. All right? Now, let me again read Wilcock to you on this. Um, He says this, In this passage, unrighteous wealth refers not only to money, But to all the goods of this world, and indeed to everything that we have here, but shall not be able to take with us into the next life. Although these things, your property, ability, time, belong to this life only, says Jesus, yet what will happen to you then when you pass into that life will depend on what you are doing with them here and now. Make sure that your use of them brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. So you're kind of catching this. What you do with your unrighteous wealth, what you do with your stuff, with your money, with your worldly things will actually kind of influence and ultimately determine what happens to you in the age to come. Now, there is something that he brings out, Wilcock does, at the end of that um, paragraph I just read that I thought is worthy of a moment's reflection because it's amazing. And in the midst of the complexity of Jesus' words, we're prone to miss it. Let me read you what he said one more time. Make sure that your use of them, these things, brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. Did you hear that? Because in in, in Jesus' words, in the text that we have, it's amazing what Jesus is describing heaven as. Jesus is talking about heaven as this uh, eternal fellowship of friends. That, that, that's what heaven is kind of like. That's when he's saying, listen, make sure you're using your stuff so that you're preparing for heaven. He says, listen, make sure you're using your stuff so that you got a lot of friends waiting for you in heaven. He's talking about heaven as if it were this fellowship, this eternal abiding fellowship of friends. And of course, the chief of all friendships is that friendship that we have uh, in Christ with God himself. Right? I mean, remember that text in John fifteen fifteen. I have called you friends. He's saying, use your stuff to foster that friendship. Here's what's amazing to me uh, about this. We so often kind of mistake material wealth as an end in itself, right? We kind of think that therein we're going to find satisfaction. The wealth is going to bring us some sense of completion, and it never does. It doesn't work that way. Our hearts don't work that way. We long ultimately not for stuff, but for love. And we get so caught up in our stuff, we forsake the things that our hearts are actually longing for. That's why you can be filthy rich, for example, and miserable. 
Because you don't have anyone to spend it with. you got all this stuff, but then you're kind of like, does anybody actually love me? Or are they just kind of here hanging out because I'm the sugar daddy with all the things that they want? Who actually loves me? So you can be filthy rich and miserable because your heart is longing for this fellowship of friends with others, but then ultimately with God. We lose it. We miss it. This is the sort of thing that uh, the author of Proverbs in Proverbs fifteen seventeen um, is is talking about when he says this: "Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it." Did you hear that? He said, "I'd rather eat a few blades of grass with some like olive oil and balsamic and salt and pepper on it with with friends, with real love at the table, than have a feast alone." Or with those who I don't have meaningful, loving relationship with, but instead animosity. It's not going to be the stuff. It's not going to be the material stuff that fills you. It's going to be this fellowship of friends that passes on into eternity. In particular, the relationship that we have, the friendship that we have with God. That's why I wonder if you've ever been moved by this phrase. It has just captivated me time and time again, brought me to tears time and time again, because I can't imagine that I would ever hear this. But at the same time, it's incredible. Do you remember how Jesus describes heaven uh, when he's sharing another parable about the talents and these guys who are faithful servants, some of them. And he says, listen, here is what the the master is going to say. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter what? Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25, 21. He describes heaven, he describes your, your entry point into eternity as entering into the joy of your master. Meaning, entering into this relationship that the way you've handled your, your stuff on earth has been with a view to loving friendships that will carry on and ultimately a friendship with God so that on that day, heaven for you is not that you get a street of gold to like prance on or whatever, not that you get a mansion in the sky where you get an HDTV and you get to kick it with Moses and a few other cool guys from the Old Testament. It's that you actually get to engage in, enter in upon, and in fullness, this friendship with God, your Father. And you get to live under the sunshine of His smiling face forever. And His song will be the soundtrack of your eternity. As He sings over those kids in whom He delights. That's what you're created for. And he's saying, listen, there's a fellowship of friends that passes into eternity. That's what we're talking about. That's what this eternal home is. That's what we ought to be ordering all our things uh, and the way we handle our money, our checks. That's what it all better be with a view towards. And yet so often it's not, right? So often it's about accumulating for us. It's about securing our little thing, getting our little kingdom all in place and actually keeping people out because they mess up our bottom line. Anybody been there? I've been there. Kids are expensive. You know, having people over for dinner. My goodness, what happened to the budget? The groceries are crazy because we're having people over and we're feeding the food. I don't want people over anymore. Right? That sort of a thing. And yet if we're getting what Jesus is saying here, say, listen, that's the stuff your heart is truly longing for. That's the stuff that you should kind of organize and order your life all around. Because that's the stuff that's going to carry on into eternity. All right. What time is it? Okay. We've got some time. Let's go. Um, now, uh, 
let me move. Stair step number three. Stair step number three, uh, verses 10 through 12. I'm going to take this uh, kind of three-verse cluster here just in, in all at one time uh, simply because I think they're really bringing out the same basic idea. And it's this idea of stewardship. So what we see here is that Jesus was not uh, just kind of, you know, using careless words as he's talking about a manager or a steward. He's trying to draw parallels to our reality that we are, in fact, uh, disciples or not. All human beings are actually stewards of things which God has given them. Uh, This is his and we are stewards. And so this idea of stewardship uh, features large in these three verses. And I want you to see it. Uh, Verse 10 begins the idea by saying that the kind of steward we are with a little will be the kind of steward that we are with a lot. So God often what we'll find as a basic principle, he will test us with a little uh, and and then and then depending on how that goes and what our heart does with the little, we will be entrusted with more. If we make the little all about us, or if it's, if it's too little for us and is not, and we're more important than that, then he won't entrust us with more. Because the heart's not going to suddenly get better when you get more. In fact, it probably gets worse. But if you can be faithful with the little and just, man, God, thank you. It's you and me. We're doing this. I love this. I'm handling this with care because it comes to me from my father. You're faithful with the little and it doesn't matter how much you got. Well, then you know what? Then the father is free to give more and entrust you with more because it doesn't have your heart. He does. That's the first thing we see, verse 10, about stewardship. But then he continues the idea in verse 11, puts a little bit more of a sharper point on it. It says this, I want to read it. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, in other words, with the little, who will entrust to you the true riches? So here's where I was getting at that contrast I was saying, where you see this this unrighteous wealth, or the, the wealth that characterizes this age, Uh, that's temporal, finite, not going to pass through into eternity, and it's contrasted with the true riches, the true wealth that will go on and will carry on. And he says, listen, if you're not faithful with the stuff of this world, it's not going to happen with that. I'm not going to entrust you with the true riches. So the logic here is, is plain. He determines... He determines what will, uh, whether we're worthy of being entrusted with true riches in the age to come on the basis of how we handle the riches and possessions and wealth of this present age. So there is no dichotomy in God's thinking in terms of, oh, that's just physical stuff and here's the spiritual stuff. No. He's saying the way you handle the physical, the way you handle this material stuff is actually exposing your spiritual state, and it's determining, in some ways, your spiritual destiny. It's, it, 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 it's indicating who we are in, an, in, the, in the essence, where we stand before God, the way we handle our stuff. It's not insignificant. That's why Jesus talks about money perhaps more than anyone else, I think, in the Bible. It's one of his favorite subjects, and not because he was going to pass around a, a, a cup and get taken offering, because he loves us. And he knows our hearts just wander towards that so often. And he wants eternity, like Peter would say, to be richly provided for us. And you're not going to take your riches on this age with you there. Okay. Verse 12 really gives this idea of stewardship its clearest expression. And I wanted to linger on this one in particular. He says this, If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, 
Who will give you that which is your own? It's an amazing verse. We see here still the contrast uh, between this idea of what we have here and now and what we'll get in the age to come. Because uh, he says it's, he says that which is another's and then that which is your own. It's the same contrast he's been building out. But what I want for you to see is how he refers to the wealth and possessions and, and the riches of this age. He says that which is another's. He's referring there to the stuff you and I have Right now, in this present age, he says, the stuff you have is another's. You go, whose? Well, I know my house belongs to Larry the landlord, and I'm never going to get that from him because I pay rent, and it's like, wow, it's insane. But you know what he's talking about, right? He's saying that everything that you have ultimately comes to you from God. Everything that you have is that which is another's. It's God's. We are... Americans, right? So we like to think of ourselves as self-made individuals. This idea of stewardship, this idea of that everything I have is that which is another's, uh, doesn't sit well with us. We think that the things we have, we have because we sweat, we worked, we overcame, we reached out, we grabbed it. It's mine. Don't touch it. Right? Me trying to puff my chest out. That's the American way, right? individualistic, self-made man, woman, whatever it may be. I'm not trying to say that a lot of us haven't overcome serious odds to get what we have or to get to where we are. But I am trying to say that ultimately, ultimately, Jesus is saying here, everything you have from your job and home and possessions all the way back to the very breath in your lungs has been gifted to you, entrusted to you by God. In case you don't believe me or Jesus on this point, let me read to you a few other texts. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? He's assuming that the answer is nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did did not receive it? Why do you boast as if you did it? John the Baptist, when people are leaving him and following Jesus, and everyone goes, gosh, aren't you a little bit upset about this? I mean, your ministry is dwindling. We're all a little concerned here. John the Baptist says this in John 3.27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The ministry I had came from God. If God has something else to do uh, with me, then let it be. It wasn't mine in the first place. Peter says, 1 Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Just as you are stewards of the grace that God has given you. How's it going? Use it as if it didn't just originate from you and you're awesome and everyone should look at you, but as if it came to you from God, you're going to give an account to Him for it. Perhaps most eloquently put of all, it's as David says, I think when they're kind of um, uh, dedicating the temple and things, and he, he says in, in First Chronicles or, uh, 29, 16, he, he says, I could be wrong, actually, is that Solomon? Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I'll have to go back and check. Oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have comes from your hand and is all your own. Did you hear that? He says, God, everything that we have comes from your hand, and it's your own. And we're just giving it back. We're saying thank you. We're using all, but it's all been yours in the first place. Stewardship. 
All of life is stewardship. It's all God's gift to us. Our money, our possessions, our jobs, our spouses, our kids, our breath. So the question again is, what are we doing with it? Are we living like it's our own to kind of manage and accumulate for ourselves and build our kingdoms? Or are we ordering it as, as a, and organizing and using it as if we're going to give an account? Are we using it for not our own purposes, but the one whose it is purposes? Meaning, are we using our wealth and our time and our energy and everything for the mission of God, for the advance of His kingdom, for the spreading of the gospel? In love for Him, in love for others, are we partnering with Him? In it? Is that what we're using it for? To foster that relationship with Him that will pass through eternity? Or is it just about me? My stuff. Because we will give an account. The master of the house will come and ask, what have we been doing with all he's given Now, as we come to verse 13 and what I would consider stair step number four, and I'm going to slowly start drawing things to a close here. Uh, Jesus gets really to the heart of the matter and uh, quite literally, actually, what we see is he says this, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The question he's getting at now, he just really just kind of drives it in is, does God have your heart or not? Does God have your heart or does money have your heart? Does the stuff of this world, what do you get most excited about? What do you get most afraid about? Follow your emotions. Follow your desires. What do you, where does it go? Does it go towards God, His kingdom, His glory, getting to know Him, deeper relationship, loving other people? Or is it about yourself and getting more for you? Does God have your heart or does money? Here's the thing that Jesus makes very clear and it's powerful and it's troubling. This is not a both-and situation. We cannot say, what kind of both? I love God and I love money. He says, no, this is an either-or decision because here's what will happen at the end of the day when it all shakes down. You're going to have only two options. The the, the road is going to fork. And you're either going to uh, use your money release it, uh, let go of it in such a way that it will serve your love for God and His purposes and mission and, and love for others in the world, or you will try to get God, manipulate Him, use Him, quote Scripture at Him, get, you know, do good works to try to get God to serve your love for money. Their whole ministry is built around that idolatry. Hey, throw in your seed, and hey, it's gonna, more money is going to sprout back for you. So you will pass around the plate, and just, I want you to see that money as a seed for you. And as you drop that in, it's going to sprout in your own bank account later. So thank you. We give, trying to manipulate God to serve our God. Money. And Jesus is saying, what's it going to be? What's it going to be now? Here's how I'm gonna. Here's how I'm gonna conclude. I, I want to test for a moment. Return to that observation I said needed to guide my interpretation and application of the text. Is all that we've been saying is that going to frustrate the Pharisees in particular because they were lovers of money? I think so. Is that going to upset them? Is that going to give them reason to ridicule? Wait, wait a minute. What do you mean? We serve God and we love money. Yeah, I think so. 
I think so. But here's the point that I want to bring out for us. It doesn't have to upset us. What Jesus is saying here doesn't have to upset, anger, frustrate us. I want you to know Jesus is not in this trying to hurt you. By saying these hard words, these things that maybe help you feel, make you feel a little uncomfortable, Jesus is not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to upset you. He's trying to save you. He's trying to save you from a world of heartache. Paul says that, man, we fall, we, we pursue after money and we pierce ourselves with many pangs because we think it's going to give stuff to us that it never delivers on. And I didn't make much of this at the time, but I wonder if you notice back up in verse 9, Jesus says straight out, this money, the wealth that characterizes this age, it will fail you. Here's what he says. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, not if it fails, you say when it fails, you know, well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm savvy enough with my investments and portfolio. It ain't going to fail. It will fail. You're not going to bring your coin with you when you stand before God, when you pass into eternity. It will fail you whether now or later it will he says, when it fails, and he said, I want you to be ready when it fails. I want you to have something lasting, something underneath your feet. He's saying, stop building your life on sand. Let's start building on the rock. Now, I was trying to think, why is this so hard for us? Why does Jesus have to come at this again and again? And he's going to, and so I'm going to keep doing it too. It's going to keep coming in these weeks. Why does he keep, what's, what's up with this? Why do our hearts keep going towards money and the stuff of this world? What is it? What does money and this stuff promise us? What do we think we're going to get from it? I came up immediately, just came to my mind, three things. And you know I'm a pastor because there's alliteration involved. I'm sorry, forgive me. But these are the three things that immediately came to my mind. And test your own art if it's true. We, we pursue after money. We long for money because we think it's going to give us satisfaction. We think it's going to give us security. We think it's going to give us status. We think somehow the money's going to fill us. We think somehow it's going to keep us safe. If we get it all right, we'll feel better, right? Who doesn't feel better with another zero at the end of the statement in their bank account? Right? Ooh, okay, we're safe. We think it's going to get us status. I'm going to be way cooler driving up to the little corporate event in my Tesla than in my Ford Pinto, right? Status. But here's what we realize. And I don't have time to do this, but all it takes, you don't have to be smart to realize it's going to let you down in the end. That the money ultimately will not deliver. You can trace out the stories. You could ask the people who have it. But ultimately, in eternity, and that's what Jesus is going to show us with Lazarus and the rich man, ultimately it will let you down. It will let you down. And here's what I want you to catch as we end. All the things that we hope we would get from money, all the things we chase money for, in the gospel were given freely and lastingly. Did you hear that? Hear that? We think it will give us satisfaction. It lets us down there. But in the gospel, Jesus dies for sinners, rises from the dead, and opens up a door for us to fellowship, to friendship with the one we were created for. Living water flowing within satisfaction because of this new relationship with him. It it gives us security that we'll never get from money. Gosh, your, your investments could just drop in a moment. You're constantly biting your nails. But if you know that you have been adopted into the family of God and He is committed to caring for you, His name is on the line. 
He will provide. There is a security there that money never can give you because the one who owns it all has, has, has committed himself to you. There's a status change that takes place, right? I've been reading about the, the spirit of adoption that we're given in the gospel, that we are called children of God. We walk into the family room of heaven, sit down on the Father's lap. That is a status change that you can't get by trying to climb the corporate ladder or getting another zero at the end, at the end of your net worth. All the things that we've longed for, He gives it to us and more and in an eternal, everlasting way. It's the sort of change that Zacchaeus knew. Zacchaeus was this rich chief tax collector, a swindler, just like the guy in our parable. Okay? All about the money. All about the money. And then he meets Jesus. And Jesus moves towards him, invites him, you know, wants to fellowship with him, that relationship again that the heart was created for. He gets a taste of that love. He says, I'm a sinner. No one wants to be near me. I, I, I use everyone, manipulate everyone. Jesus said, I want to be near you. I love you. I'm going to give my life for you. He tastes that grace and it transforms everything. Money, material, loses its allure. And he said, I want to give to the people I have stolen from. I want to make sure others, I'm going to use my possessions in a way that, that partners with you in this mission. As others know about how good you are, the grace that you have is, that it's available to them to tell you that's the way if you're wondering how do i become a better steward it's not by kind of you know flexing your muscles and sweating it's by letting god meet you in jesus and love you there he's the only true good steward and he'll serve you love you give you those things you thought money would give you but never could and then what will happen is your hands will slowly start to release and you'll be able you'll actually even want to use those things to honor <laughs> the one who has so loved you. Right? All right, let's pray. God, we come to you now. Uh, we want to be good stewards. We want to use the things of this world in view of the coming eternity. And Lord, we know that the way we begin is by um, fellowshipping with the one who left eternity, we could say, to come towards us. Come into this world. You, you gave up the riches that you had with the Father to become poor so that in your poverty we might become rich. Rich in this friendship that we enjoy with you, the inheritance that's ours. God, I pray you would help us loosen our hands, loosen our grip. Let us release our things in love for you and others so that eternity may be richly provided for us. And we'd be proven to be, at the end of the day, shrewd in the best of ways. In Jesus' name, amen.